In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a blessed and glorious Sunday it is this day. In our earlier service, we had a baptism, the baptism of Thomas Virigi. We're reminded of all the blessings that God bestows, chief of which, as we prayed in our liturgy, is this reality that God has made Thomas an heir of his heavenly kingdom. An heir of his heavenly kingdom. As we reflect on his baptism and on our own baptisms, we must reflect on this fact. God is winning. One by one, God is snatching us out of Satan's hands and making us heirs of his everlasting kingdom. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Jesus is our king. God be thanked and praised. Now, I want to talk to you today about Romans chapter 13. After all, how could we not living this in this age and period of time of great governmental overreach? We simply have to have our heads screwed on straight regarding the biblical teaching of our relationship to government. But before we get there, it is of absolute importance that we first lay the foundation as Paul himself has spent chapters 1 through 12 doing before he even gets to chapter 13. And that foundation, very plainly, is Christ Jesus. There is no other foundation. Because if you don't believe that Jesus Christ, on his cross, made the perfect and full atonement for all your sins then you won't be able to stand upright with a clear conscience and face the wickedness of this age. If you don't believe that Jesus, by his life and by his death, trampled sin, death, and the devil, trampled and overcame the powers of darkness, dealing them a death blow, then you will not have the strength or the courage to stand up against what remains of those powers of darkness. If you don't believe that Jesus is risen, that Jesus has truly overcome death, then you won't be able to overcome the fear of death and stand and make the good confession, realizing that the very worst thing they can do to you is also the very best thing. Conform you to the image of Jesus. Conform you to the image of his death and resurrection. In baptism, God not only makes us members of Jesus' eternal kingdom, with Jesus himself as our king, He also makes us immortal. We are immortals. And what is this world? We're simply passing through. This world isn't our home, and the kingdoms of this world aren't our kingdoms. 
We have a heavenly king and a heavenly kingdom. We are simply passing through. So how then do we relate to government here on earth? Precisely as one's passing through. The bottom line is that by his death on the cross, your sins have been forgiven. By Jesus' death on the cross, God is at peace with you. And by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, you can gain a fearlessness. You need not fear losing this life or the possessions of this life. I mean, spoiler alert, it's going to happen to us all anyway. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, we need not be afraid. This makes us, as immortals, both wonderfully humble, because we recognize that our Lord Jesus has done this all for us by his grace, and we have nothing of ourselves. But it also makes us profoundly fearless, profoundly fearless. The greatest power this world has, the power of suffering and death, is overcome in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. There is no other ancient historical event with more evidence supporting it than the resurrection of Jesus. Over 500 eyewitnesses. Written documents that attest to the resurrection of Jesus, incomparable to any others. 2,000 years worth of proofs that Jesus is risen. Countless, countless saints, not just the first 12 disciples or 11 as it were, but countless saints willing to lay down their lives, willing to go to torture and death rather than give up on this truth. Jesus is risen. Jesus is our king. And if Jesus is our king, that poises us to understand what Paul's getting at in Romans 13. Let's take the first couple of verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He is our king. He establishes the earthly authority underneath him. Our default position is being subject to the government. But what exactly does that mean? So I've titled my homily today, Subject to the Government? Question mark. Subject to the Government? Question mark. Because there are some Christians who take this scripture section to mean that we must absolutely submit and absolutely obey the government lest we are rebelling against God. But if that superficial, if that absolutist reading of Romans 13 is allowed to stand, we've got some big problems biblically. A few examples. What on earth do you do with Moses, who was most certainly not at all subject to the governing authorities of Egypt? 
who most certainly resisted Pharaoh, whose governmental authority he and the Hebrew people were under? Or what do you do with David, who was by no means subject to the wicked King Saul's false edict that, and false judgment that David ought to be put to death. Or David's retreating over to the side of the Philistines where he puts himself under the authority of the Philistine governor of the city and then subverts that Philistine leader every step of the way. Or what do you do with the formal king and queen of Israel, King Ahaz and, king, and Queen Jezebel, and Elijah? Elijah, who rejects their authority and resists them every step of the way. Of course, you remember from Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? And King Nebuchadnezzar, they refused, they refused to bow down and worship the six-and-a-half-story-foot-tall image of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, no one in Sacramento has done that quite yet, but the egotism is nonetheless evident. What about Daniel a few chapters later? All that was required by King Darius of Daniel is that he just cease from prayer for 30 days. That's it, just stop. A similar edict was given to us. I think it was 15 days. Here we are on day 170-something. What about John the Baptist, who called out Herod for his personal immorality? What about our Lord Jesus himself, who stood before Pilate and said, you have no authority except that which has been given to you from above? And did our Lord Jesus himself not resist the authorities as he went on doing the very things they forbid him to do? Healing, even on the Sabbath, preaching and teaching, claiming rightfully and truthfully to be the Son of God. And so it went with Jesus' apostles. Until very famously, we have that statement of Peter in Acts chapter 5 where the authorities had forbade them from preaching. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And I could spend literally the rest of the day quoting to you stories from the past 2,000 years where church fathers and saints have resisted governmental authority and oppression. From Justin Martyr to Athanasius to Chrysostom, and on and on it goes, right up until the time of the Reformation itself, where Luther and the Lutheran reformers stood up against the tyranny of Charles V. And even beyond Luther's death, the Lutherans stood up, as we'll hear in just a moment, in the Magdeburg Confession of 1550. And so it's gone for the last 500 years. So how then are we to understand Romans 13? Let's focus on verses 1 through 5, and I'll read them one final time. Let's see then what we can glean. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, 
for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. There are five things we can glean from this. In the first place, authority, governmental authority, is established by God himself. It's not optional. Anarchy isn't an option. Nor does government sort of evolve from the fallen human race. It is a gift given to us by God, divinely instituted. In the second place, then, notice that Paul says absolutely nothing about individual persons in those seats of authority. Paul is speaking about the offices and stations of authority. Third, Paul's operating assumption is that those occupying the offices and stations of authority are doing so justly. That's why he says, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Fourth, we are reminded that the authorities do not bear the sword in vain. So contrary to our delicate and fragile minds here in the 21st century, a sword is used for one purpose. And so the government has been given the sword by God. Capital punishment is completely permissible to handle those who are domestic, uh, who who are guilty of domestic crimes against the state, and externally amongst those who are foreign enemies of the state. So he does not bear the sword in vain. God has given him this authority. Which, by the way, is why we ought to urge our governors to go out and fight the rioters in the streets. It's their duty to do this. And fifth, last, and well, yeah, actually least in this case, important to note that Paul doesn't mention that this is applicable only to Christians, but to every person, to every person. So again, our default position and attitude as Christians is to subject ourselves to government and to be good citizens. After all, the original rebel was Satan, and we don't want anything to do with him. But here's the question, and here's the question that already Christians all around the globe are facing, and we too in our country are increasingly facing. What happens when governing authorities do not exhibit God's judgment? What happens when they're not acting in God's place? What happens when rulers do in fact become a terror, not to what is evil, but to what is good? What happens when everything gets turned upside down? What happens when rulers openly promote protect and ally themselves, with, ally themselves with what is evil. We've seen it in our country, riots, the subversion of family, promotion and celebration of uh, sodomy and fornication, all manner of perversion, and then the indoctrination of our children, the forced indoctrination of our children in the public schools, abortion as well. These are the things that government increasingly stands for. Meanwhile, government becomes an enemy of what is good. 
shutting down churches and lawful businesses, and suing nuns, threatening priests and pastors. What happens when those who are in authority don't at all fulfill the description that Paul here gives? Of the utmost importance is this. Jesus is king. Jesus determines what is right and what is wrong. Not you, not me, not the government. And just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. Jesus is king. We must obey Jesus, God and not man. And that means, in summary, we have two positions. The default position, we are absolutely obedient to God-given government. And the secondary position, we are respectfully disobedient to tyrants who undermine God-given government. Now, as Lutherans, we have two rather profound things that we can do to serve our neighbors, two rather profound insights. The first is by way of the fourth commandment where we see and we are taught again in the large catechism that all authority flows from the authority of the parents. All authority, governmental authority and churchly authority, flows from the parents. What does this mean? This means we have a very easy way to evaluate those who govern us. Are they protecting the family in this life? Concretely, are they ruling in the way of God's natural law expressed to us in the Ten Commandments? If not, they're not protecting the family in this life. And second, are they protecting the family on its way to eternal life? What that means concretely is, are they protecting the church and allowing the church to remain free? Those are the two criteria according to the fourth commandment. So we can add this to the conversation, that the rulers are themselves subject to God and will be judged by him. The second thing we have to add is perhaps even more important, and that comes to us from the Magdeburg Confession of the 1550s. Tyranny doesn't come in one flavor. Tyranny doesn't come in absolute oppression only. Tyranny can also come quite subtly, a soft totalitarianism, the goal of which is to have us complicit, agreeing with our own subjugation. What we have to offer to people and to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is just this simple, don't be naive. Because one way of tyranny is to say, well, we're going to enforce this upon you. And we think to ourselves, well, that's in and of itself not so bad. And then we're going to enforce this upon you. Well, in and of itself it's not so bad. And then this, and then this, and then this. And all of a sudden, before you know it, there's this great big picture that the government is no longer operating in good faith. That all of these little pieces, none of which is a hill to die on in and of itself, have amassed into a soft but very effective tyranny and persecution. I won't go into this, but you owe it to yourself to go home and Google 
the Magdeburg Confession, 1550, and you'll find uh, issues, etc. treating this. You'll find a, an article by Dr. Ryan McPherson. You'll find these four levels of tyranny. It is well worth your time to become acquainted with this. Now, what then is the end, the conclusion, which I know you're waiting for because it's hot in here, of our meditation this morning? What the exegetes tell us about this passage now all of a sudden becomes particularly clear and particularly true. What is often translated in the English as being subject to governing authorities is better translated as being subordinated. Ordinated coming from the language of order. To be rightly ordered under our rulers. What does that mean? When they are doing the things of God to be obedient. When they are doing and commanding those things that are contrary to God to respectfully resist. That's what it means to be subject to the authorities, to be rightly ordered to the authorities. We take heart that this world and its tyrants have only a short time and by the way, we do too. God be thanked and praised. We are simply passing through. Let us live lives as those who are accountable to God. Let us live lives as those who are forgiven by God, whose sins have been entirely blotted out by the blood of Jesus, for indeed they have. And let us live as if Jesus were in fact risen, because he is. What can man do to me? Jesus is king. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please rise for the prayer.